Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Ross, and I'll be your guide to explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from our Missouri. Today's episode continues our multi-part series on border wars, a detailed examination of the conflicts that define Missouri's borders and boundaries, as well as the state's role in the Civil War and its aftermath. Our guest today is Jeremy Neely. He holds a PhD in history from the University of Missouri and presently serves as an assistant professor of history at Missouri State University. His book, The Border Between Them, Violence and Reconciliation on the Kansas-Missouri Line, was published by the University of Missouri Press in 2007. Welcome to our Missouri, Jeremy. Thanks, Sean. Glad to be here. Now, tell us about really the origins of this book project and where it really began uh, for you. This project began in my life as a basketball fan before my life as a historian. I was a diehard Mizzou Tiger fan, and I'd just grown up knowing that Mizzou's biggest rival uh, was Kansas, and that every year when the, the Jayhawk game rolled around, everybody got especially fired up about that, and, and so I'd always been interested in that, and, and as I grew older, I, I started to learn about the history of it, and I, I happened to grow up and, and go to high school in a, a small town along the, the Kansas line, and so I was in the thick of this place where the Civil War had burned hot, but I didn't know that much about the war in that place uh, until I went to, to college and then to graduate school and, and picked this project up and wanted to understand uh, what were the historical roots of all of this animosity that people talked about between Kansans and Missourians. Now, as you're kind of getting into the project, as you're obviously working on research and a dissertation and what becomes the book ultimately, mm -hmm. you know, what are the archives you're visiting? What are the sources that you're consulting with to kind of develop this narrative and this and, and this background? What I wanted to understand first was how does the, the border war that's uh, going to rage along the, the Kansas-Missouri line for basically a decade uh, from the bleeding Kansas period uh, from 1856 with John Brown's uh, massacre along Pottawatomie Creek all the way through 1865 with the end of the National Civil War, I wanted to understand how does this experience change the people who live along this state line? And I, I chose as my focus the counties along the, the open border south of the Missouri River, where there's no artificial boundary separating them. It's just an invisible line drawn upon a map. And I thought, um, what does this look like if you take a long view of the people who were here before the war, during the war, and then afterward? And so I, I had to go to archives uh, and historical sites uh, along both sides. And I started with uh, census records because I first wanted to know who's there. Uh, how do these populations change over time? And so I sat down and I created a, a big census database of uh, people in six counties, uh, three in Kansas and three in Missouri. And then once I understood how the, the populations were changing and, and frankly becoming more similar, 
I then wanted to, to find the voices of the people who were there. And so I, I tracked down manuscripts, including diaries and letters. And, and in the last major collection that I dove into were the newspapers uh, produced on, on both sides of the state line uh, to get a feel for how did the war continue to resonate? How did it matter? What did people say about the war? And so those were the foundations of the project. You touched on a little bit there about your kind of focus on the specific counties. Uh, tell us what those six counties were and why that appealed to you more so than, let's say, north of the Missouri River or kind of you know, what we think of with Clay County mm. and Platte County and places like that. The counties that I look at on the Missouri side are Cass, Bates, and Vernon counties as you move south uh, from the Kansas City area. And then the adjacent Kansas counties, which line up almost, um, not, not perfectly, but they're right, right there next to them, are Miami County, Lynn County, and then Bourbon County. Uh, so from the suburban Kansas City, Kansas area down towards Fort Scott. And honestly, the reason that I chose those six counties was, first, they allowed me to, to use this question of uh, political boundaries and how people can create um, artificial boundaries and then ascribe to them various meanings and how those meanings can change over time and become contested. But the, the main reason that I chose six counties was for feasibility. I, as a graduate student, wanted very much to, to write my dissertation and, and be able to finish my dissertation. And I worried that if I chose every county along the Missouri-Kansas line, uh, up from Nebraska all the way down to, to um, the southern end of Kansas, that, I, that the project may just sprawl on indefinitely. And so six counties seemed like a tight enough focus that it would allow me to, to address the questions I thought were interesting, but also to make it more manageable. Now, when the subject of bleeding Kansas is brought up, you know, there's a, a tendency to focus on kind of the big names, you know, William Quantrill, um, Bloody Bill Anderson, even John Brown. Mm -hmm. um, and you explain those, the significance of those individuals, certainly in, in that context. But you're also looking at, you know, local residents of these counties and really what's happening to them. Um, mm -hmm. What were some of the first acts of violence that you found in this kind of bleeding Kansas, you know, bleeding Missouri story? that kind of you mm -hmm. picked up on and focused on in your research? What struck me as I began to look at the history of the border was the fact that this tendency towards violence, uh, extra legal violence or vigilantism, it predated the struggle over Kansas territory and the, the fate of slavery there. That if, if you look back to the 1830s, uh, during which the uh, Latter-day Saints, the Mormons who'd arrived uh, in Western Missouri, that they get expelled under threat of violence. But even before that, the, the Osages, who had inhabited the whole country that these counties will eventually become, that they had been driven out by treaty, but at a number of points, the, the threat of, of open bloodshed was, was a catalyst towards keeping them from trying to uh, return to their, their tribal hunting grounds. And so I, I found that there was this larger um, culture of, of violence and an acceptance of using extra legal force to achieve political ends. And whenever the Kansas territory is organized, it, it quickly takes on this new intensity because of the debates about slavery. But at the same time, I found interesting how many of these conflicts were ignited over disputed land claims and access to water and, and sorts of uh, you know, mundane Western issues 
that in the context of the sectional crisis is the, the nations being further and further divided by slavery and questions of freedom, that in Kansas, it becomes explosive. Now, the issue of slavery and, and, and later on with secession is, is significant, I mean, across the entire country. But, you know, in, when we think of Missouri and Kansas, I mean, in its territorial phase, Kansas has two governments. Um, mm -hmm. In the Civil War, Missouri has right. two governments, uh, you know, a slavery yeah. and a, a constitutional union or a, or a kind of uh, a f uh, freedom to an extent, one for Kansas. In these, in these counties um, and along this kind of middle border of Missouri there, um, you know, the residents living there, how are they viewing this slavery and secessionist debate? It's, it's remarkable the ways in which these counties are affected by the events that are happening in them and in nearby. In Kansas, uh, during the early territorial period, you see a significant number of, of Missourians. For a time, the, the pro-slavery faction has the largest number of supporters in the, in the territory. And by 1857 and 1858, they'll be outnumbered by uh, free staters coming in from Illinois and Indiana and Ohio. But uh, in Bourbon County in particular, near Fort Scott, you have a, a significant number of Missourians who are going to stick around even after um, the rise of the, the free state faction that gains control of, of Kansas politics. And what's interesting to me is that on the Kansas side, once Fort Sumter happens and, and Confederate artillery opened fire on that, that U.S. installation, Kansans rally, despite their previous divisions between pro-slavery and anti-slavery, that with Fort Sumter, they, they really rallied behind the flag. And there's just a strong unionist um, feeling uh, across these counties. And in Missouri, there is, uh, as anyone of any student of Missouri history knows, it's it's complicated. Um, in Vernon County, Missouri, which is the least populated of the three that I look at, it's it's the farthest south, and it has the smallest popul population of enslaved people. When that 1860 election comes around, and Abraham Lincoln isn't receiving um, any votes at all uh, in some of the, these townships. Vernon County voters behave much more like uh, people down in South Carolina. Uh, Vernon County, the, the secessionist candidates, both for Missouri governor and for uh, US president will win. And it's, it's a four person race and, and nobody wins a clear majority of, of either of those. But I found it striking that in, in these counties where John Brown had raided in 1858 to set free uh, enslaved people, but also uh, attack uh, slavers, that these people are galvanized. Uh, they, they very much understand themselves on the front lines of a struggle over um, slavery and, and the fate of the West that I think is even sharper than the, the feeling in other parts of Missouri. As things are progressing, as we get into the Civil War, of course, there is the kind of notable Order Number 11, which comes out um, in the midst of the war. Um, yeah. And this has an effect upon uh, the counties that you're focusing on, especially on the Missouri side. Um, yeah. So how far down did, did that order impact these counties? And really, how did the residents live through not only that, but also what becomes known as the Burnt District? Sure. The, the events of Order Number 11 were a significant factor in, in why I chose the counties that are in the book. I, I knew that during the war, the Union Army had... Uh, ordered the depopulation of these uh, three Missouri counties and then a, a narrow strip of townships in northern Vernon County. And, 
And so I wanted to make that the, the focus or the setting of, of my story. And it's, it's a moment, um, unlike really anything else that happens, not just in the Civil War, but in, in the long arc of US history. The only thing that's, I think, comparable to it, uh, in which the United States government is taking such a hard line policy against its own citizens is uh, the internment of Japanese Americans during the Second World War. But by the summer of 1863, the, the Union Army had struggled so mightily to control guerrilla violence. Uh, they'd been unable to uh, defeat the guerrillas to drive them from the state and to maintain order that they decide they're going to strike at the, the social networks that support them. Uh, the women and the kinfolk who provide these guerrillas like Quantrill and Bill Anderson and others with uh, fresh horses and food and military intelligence and shelter and the like. And the events of 1863 just take on a momentum uh, of their own. And as the army begins to crack down on guerrilla supporters by beginning first with the arrest uh, and the, the anticipated banishment of the sisters and mothers and other known relatives of, of guerrillas, that leads to the jail collapse in Kansas City, which kills uh, some of these relatives, including the sister of Bill Anderson. And then after the jail collapse, you have uh, the attack upon Lawrence by Quantrill's men, which kill more than 170 men and boys uh, across the Kansas line. And then that becomes the catalyst for Order Number 11, in which the Army declares they're not only going to remove the known supporters, the female relatives of guerrillas, they're going to, to banish anyone who will not take a loyalty oath to the Union. And so within a fortnight, within a couple of weeks, the U.S. Army will um, order out all Southern sympathizers. And as it turns out, a whole lot of people whose loyalties are unclear, and, and even some who had professed later to be Unionists. And we don't know exactly how many people get kicked out, but the, the best figure that I, I can say is I think at least 10,000 uh, Missourians are going to be driven from these counties the people who can profess their loyalty to the satisfaction of, of local Union soldiers, they're allowed to stay within one mile of the military posts uh, that exist. And, and there were four of them at the time, two in Jackson County and then two down in Cass County. But in Bates County, where there are no such military posts for loyalists to remain, everybody's gone. And one of the provisions of Order Number 11 allows for the Union Army to seize any uh, forage, any hay that gets left behind so that gorillas can't come in and take that to keep their horses fed during the, the fall and winter that's to come. And so there's plundering that happens in the wake of this and then fires get set. And some of these fires are likely set by Union troops, but some of them are, are likely set by marauders and gorillas and, and, and who knows who else. But the, the fire spread to a landscape that is still in this country dominated by um, tall grass prairie and by late August when this order is issued on, on August 25th um, if anyone who's walked a prairie that knows these 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 native grasses get really tall and they're really dry and uh, the fires just sweep through the county and the the desolation is is so severe and so um, just widespread that observers will later describe this as the burnt district Bates County essentially ceases to exist for the next 18 months until uh, inhabitants begin to come back slowly as the war burns itself out. Um, but it's a, it's a dramatic change. And what I find is that 
it it stops guerrilla violence in these counties for the most part, but it it mostly just shunts the guerrillas to other parts of Missouri. And it's later in 1864 that you see some of these guerrillas who've been stalking the woods of Western Missouri, now in central Missouri and taking part in things like the Centralia Massacre and then joining up with Price's invasion of the state. That kind of long legacy there of, of not only the order, but also kind of the, the expulsion of people and, and the burning of that area is, is significant because as we get to the end of the war, you know, people begin to kind of come back into these counties. And now there's kind of questions about, you know, a national reconstruction, but also, you know, how are people at the localized level trying to reconcile past grievances? How are they trying to come together and how did they come together after the war? but what animosities remained as well? That's one of the central questions that animates the, the whole book is what will make possible uh, people coming together when the war is over? And what I find is that shared economic interests will, will bring together a lot of people on both sides of the state line. To be clear, not everybody, but this is the period right after the war from 1865 up through the the panic and, and depression of 1873, there's this intense competition to secure railroads for uh, a person's town. There's this palpable fear that if our town gets a railroad, that this will secure our growth and our prosperity. But if our town does not get the railroad as it spreads west or, or south or whichever direction, if our town loses the railroad, we're doomed. We, we will fade uh, in contrast to our rivals, we may, we may fade into obscurity. And as it happens, that often proves correct. Uh, a lot of the towns that have existed uh, through the Civil War simply are, are no longer going to appear upon maps in Missouri. And what I found along the state line was that you have uh, community leaders uh, in, in the Missouri counties and community leaders in the Kansas counties recognizing that geographic logic is going to require that well, not required, but it's going to certainly mean that the counties and the people that can work together are going to have an easier time of getting a railroad because these railroad lines are, are mostly running east-west at first. Uh, you've got the Missouri Pacific, which is going to near completion across Missouri by the war's end, and then you're going to have all of these proposed feeder lines that would run into the Missouri Pacific and the MKT. And so to, to get access to these lines, you've got uh, former slaveholders in Missouri and former abolitionists in Kansas, uh, putting aside their, their wartime hatreds on some of these people, uh, but their partisan rivalries and agreeing that, hey, we should, we should take up these uh, efforts as a common cause. And sometimes, as is common during this period, their railroad schemes will pan out, uh, but many times they won't. But what's interesting to me is how these boosters as I call them. These are, these are local chamber of commerce kinds of folks who are interested in seeing their communities grow, uh, to have new businesses and to have new immigrants come in. They're going to tell a story of the war in which the focus should not be on the worst things that had happened, but instead it should be a reflection of how far these communities have come in trying to move past those hard times. And so it's a really forward-looking vision in which they're going to be really careful and, and honestly um, circumspect. Uh, there are gonna be things they, they don't wanna talk about because it has been such a brutal and difficult experience. Um, but that tension 
between the people who want to move past the war and then the other people for whom the war is going to shadow the rest of their lives. I think that's a fascinating tension at play in these communities. Now, you touched on it at the very beginning there about kind of your own origin story in relation to um, kind of the history of Kansas and, and Missouri. Yeah. Um, and it comes up in your book as well. In the very open air is about the uh, University of Missouri, University of Kansas sports rivalry. And, and you touch on it at the, at the very end of the book. As someone, as you said, who grew up on this border, as someone who attended the University of Missouri, and someone who obviously kind of has a background in this rivalry, sports rivalry uh, as a fan, how do you view the significance of this rivalry overall? As somebody who's a fan and a historian, it's endlessly entertaining because uh, I, I get to see it and enjoy it on, on both sides. And so I have to say that I'm really happy to know that both universities have agreed to resume the games, which had unfortunately stopped uh, after the University of Missouri had, had jumped to the Southeastern Conference and the University of Kansas said, well, we're, we're not going to play anymore. But what's, what's fascinating to me as a historian is how fans on both sides will, will reach back to history as, as fuel to stoke the fires, to kind of gin up uh, excitement about the games. And, and the universities had gotten into this. They'd christened the football rivalry, the border war. For a time, they called it the border showdown. But uh, a lot of students and alums at each university didn't really like that. But having studied the actual border war itself, I find that the, the history, as, as always is, is more complicated. That people who had lived through the war had shown themselves willing to let bygones be bygones and to try to, to put that ugliness behind them. And the fact that now the, the story that people want to remember is it's not that story of, of reunion or reconciliation, but it's, it's the bad blood that, that certainly had persisted for many people, but it wasn't the only part uh, of the legacy. And so as a fan, I relate to that, that sense of rivalry and wanting to, to best the school that, you know, that always just feels good to beat them. But, but as a historian, the ways in which people try to use the past and sometimes misuse the past, uh, I think tells us a lot about the malleability of memory. Well, that's a perfect way to end. Thank you very much for joining me today, Jeremy. Oh, you're welcome. I was glad to talk to you. Thanks, Sean. Thank you for listening to the R Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri.